When the government takes away the people's liberties and freedom to self-determination, it's an outrage. It's a crime against humanity. But when we act on the difficult choice to take away an elderly relative's freedom over their own affairs, I think it's an act of love. CTV News reports the Ontario Provincial Police are warning Canadians to be vigilant after a senior with dementia lost $600,000 through repeated grandparent scams. She had dementia, so she couldn't remember the situation from the day before, OPP Detective Sergeant John Armit told CTV. So every day she got a call. It was a new grandparent scam over and over and she eventually lost $600,000 to these scammers. Now, to emphasize how bad this issue is, here's what happened this morning. When I Googled, because I was looking the story up, woman scam 600,000. That's what I put in, woman scam 600,000. Now, this current story here in Ontario I was looking for came up, but so did a story from Florida and another from Oregon, and these were brand new stories for $600,000. Many others as well from earlier periods. So curious, I changed the search terms. All I changed was the amount. $500,000, woman, scam. Up came a whole bunch of different stories. Scamming grandma is big business. According to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, Canadians lost more than $11.3 million to the scam last year, where criminals make random calls pretending to be grandchildren in trouble. Oftentimes, criminals target telephone lines, which are more likely to be owned by seniors, and pretend to be a grandchild in trouble by saying, Grandma, is that you? It's me, your grandson. I'm in trouble. If the grandparent responds with a name, such as, is that you, Jordan? The scammer begins a story saying, I've been injured in an accident. They claim to have caused the accident, so they're arrested. Maybe they even admit to drinking and driving or some other scenario where they've been detained. They'll ask for bail money, and often another person then comes on the phone claiming to be a police officer or prosecutor who demands thousands of dollars for bail. The scam can work on people who generally can look after themselves, but perhaps are coming at life with a bit of naivete or are being victimized due to their natural impulse to help family, however necessary. Their emotions are played on and anybody can slip and make an unfortunate decision. But in the story I started with, the woman lost $600,000 because she has dementia and is unaware of reality. There's no way she should have been left in charge of her own money. If my kids have to come up to me someday and say, Dad, we're taking the keys and the driver's license, there's likely to be an uncomfortable conversation. That's kind of how I am. But knowing my kids and respecting them as I do, I know if it does happen someday, it'll be because they are unfortunately correct and that they love me. But if a person has reached the point of not knowing what happened yesterday, who's looking out for her? There's no way an individual in the dark grip of dementia should be in charge of $600,000, even if it is hers. Certainly, it's possible that a person in that situation could be victimized by a relative. That's less likely, but if the family's paying attention, it's far less likely. In some cases, a lawyer has the power of attorney as a third party. You have to pay for that. If cousin Lisa's doing it, good for her. Eh, just keep a cautious eye on whether or not she suddenly has a new Porsche. Bank of America suggests how to get into such a situation with a parent or grandparent, start the conversation early, make gradual changes if possible, take inventory of financial and legal documents, simplify bills and take over financial tasks, consider a power of attorney, communicate and document your moves, and keep your finances separate. Unusual purchases can be the first sign. 
Take notice if your parents are suddenly buying things that don't fit their needs or lifestyle, or if they begin entering multiple contests or sweepstakes. That behavior can spiral out of control pretty quickly. This morning we discussed this topic on the radio, and Lisa Raitt said... It's a sad story. It's a terrible story. But as well, I I want people to listen and understand that you are not being mean to your loved one who has dementia when you put guardrails around what they can and cannot do. Taking away their ability to utilize their bank account is not a bad thing. To have the courage to do the things you need to do to prevent things like this from happening. It's tough. I've been there. I know. But honestly, (laughs) make these choices. It's difficult. Scary, maybe but an act of love, I believe. What do you think? 416-872-1010, 416-872-1010, toll free, 877-518-5151, and you can text me at 71010. I was fortunate to never have to deal with this. Um, my father died from cancer but had his wits about him the entire time. My mother pretty much had her wits about her the entire time as well, but there was kind of a natural process as she uh, was also suffering from cancer and a more debilitating uh, type of cancer. She became less mobile. Uh, My sister's just kind of in a natural process, just started doing things. I don't think there was paperwork involved in power of attorney or anything. It was just a case of, uh, hey, don't worry, we're looking after it. Don't worry, that's looked after. We've got it. We've got it handled. And, uh, you know, thanks to my sisters for stepping up and doing that. But here's something that had happened. My mother, I told you I grew up in Gilbert Plains, Manitoba, and that's where she was living. My father passed away. She was living there. She had friends and everything. But all of a sudden, she sold the house and she moved, and she moved to Brandon, Manitoba, because my two sisters were living in Brandon, Manitoba. And she said, someday I'm going to need their help, and I don't want them to have to travel all the way over to Gilbert Plains in order to do it. She planned ahead. Here is John from Toronto. Morning, Jerry. Hi. Um, I, I'm glad you're doing a segment on this. Uh, it is a sad, uh, a sad thing that have happened. I've had a family members been victims of this, and sometimes you have an opportunity to stop it before it happens. These things come in very different forms of people being victimized. And one of the ones that I really hate to see is when you have a senior citizen going into a bank and withdrawing large amounts of money, and you know, and they're just they're doing it and. No, no, nobody's asking any questions at the bank level half the time, and that's what happened to my aunt. And you know, and uh, now, do you blame the bank, John? I, I don't, I don't blame the bank. I, I, I don't because you know it's their money, and that's fine. But there should be some telltale signs of what's happening here. Another person, eighty years old, go down to a Petro Canada and, and buy a hundred gift cards at, yeah. at uh, twelve o'clock in the morning. You know, and it just that. So that's the that's the one thing I hate to see, and I just wish. You know, there'd be more red flags raised when, when you can someone in front of you is trying to withdraw these kinds of monies. But yeah. there should also be some sort of insurance for it. We have insurance for everything else in this world, so you know why not insure people against uh, this kind of crime? Okay. Yeah. Well, you've made a good point, though. I mean, have you ever had a situation where maybe you you've decided to travel or you're doing something and you get a note from a credit card company? Is what's going on? Right. Yeah. An alert and uh, and just some more vetting and probing of, of what's happening. And, and usually the answer is right there in front of you. All right. I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Here is Penny. You're in this area, Penny? Yeah, I'm a lawyer who practices in this area. Okay. Um, it's definitely an act of love. And I find that too many attorneys named in powers of attorney 
And of course, attorney, I mean, I don't mean lawyer, I mean whoever is named. Okay. And the banks don't understand that you can do this and that sometimes you have to. Okay, I have a question for you. Um, it's it, Let's say this situation was coming up for my parents and, you know, my sisters were not going to be able to step up for whatever reason. Okay, so as power of attorney, then um, we either have to declare one of us or we have to hire an attorney. How much is that going to cost? Well, to, first of all, your your parents would still have to be mentally capable of making a power of attorney, and then they would name whoever they want to. Yeah. And I would encourage people to name backups in case their first choice is unable or unwilling to do it. Okay. Well, then that leads to another question, maybe more importantly, what if we realize, you know, we're past due here, like dad is just, uh, this happened and this happened and this happened, and dad is not capable of signing the document? Then, unfortunately, you're stuck, and there's a mechanism called guardianship where you apply to the court for the court to say who looks after the finances and his health care decisions. Okay, so then there's some professional who would have to assess dad. Correct. Yeah. They're but, called capacity assessors. I see. Under the legislation. And then the court would declare this person is incompetent to handle his or her own affairs. And, and now who's their son lo can look after them. Yeah. 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 What a horrible situation. Do you get depressed doing this sometimes, Penny? Sometimes. And sometimes the procedure is really frustrating because yeah. you apply, you're applying for guardianship and you have to plan how you're going to look after this person. Yeah. And the financial institutions won't talk to you because you don't have guardianship yet. Well, and I've got a guess, like I'm anticipating that if my kids are starting to do this, I might be grumpy. Oh, just a bit, yeah. <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> All right, Penny, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Difficult as it is, do it. It is an act of love. This is the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good to have you along. It's a Friday, and that means it's touchdowns and fumbles day. New Ontario Liberal leader Bonnie Crombie. This is a question we want you to respond to. Sorry. Uh, here it is. New Ontario Liberal leader Bonnie Crombie was pressed for her position on the idea of a provincial carbon tax, and she didn't have a clear-cut answer. Here's basically what she kept repeating. We will develop a very strong but progressive plan to tackle climate change. Okay. So policy coming, not right now. Is that a touchdown or a fumble? Some might say it's best for a new party leader to keep options open until they've had a chance to debate and arrive at a position the whole party can support. And if that's your view, give her a touchdown by texting the two letters TD to 71010. TD to 71010. Now, if you think it's a key issue that Crombie, as leader of the party, should already have a strong message to communicate, text the word FUMBLE to 71010. We'll tally that vote accordingly. Full word FUMBLE to 71010. Our resident communications expert, Bob Reed, joins me at 1150 for touchdowns and fumbles. We'll have the vote total and get his feedback on it. Joining me now, there's a couple of stories to talk about in space and science, and we thought rather than wait until the regular second segment next week, I'll bring in our science expert, Dan Riskin. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. A private company, Intuitive Machines, just did something that the United States has not done since, I think, 1972 when they landed on the moon. Landed not with people, but landed a machine, effectively, on the moon. Here's Intuitive Machines CEO Steve Altimus. 
More than standing effort. I know this was a nail biter, but we are on the on the surface and we are transmitting. And uh, welcome to the moon. Is this an exciting step? Yeah, this is great. I mean, the thing is, he sounds muted. He sounds like, oh, well, we're on the surface. And, and then the, the control room, instead of erupting in high fives and missed high fives and all the things that NASA geeks do, um, they sort of applaud a little bit. But you got to understand the context. So this thing is in orbit around the moon, getting ready to go down. And all of a sudden, the laser range finders are not working. And it needs these things to figure out how fast it's going so it can land you know, straight down instead of landing while it's going, you know, 60 kilometers an hour relative to the ground or something like that. So it needs those lasers. They're they're not working at all. So they realize they have a payload on board with a experimental set of lasers for another purpose, but it's got lasers. And so they do the math and they figure out, well, we could use those lasers to do the job of the lasers that aren't working. So then they figure out how to do that. They write a software patch that can make the spacecraft do that thing. They upload it to the spacecraft. They need the extra time so they have the spacecraft do an extra orbit around the moon so it takes two hours longer before landing than it was supposed to land so the original plan was like 424 yesterday afternoon and, and then it landed at 624 in the evening um that's what those extra two hours were for and at the time they didn't really tell us what was happening why it was delayed but that's what we learned and then it comes in for its landing using you know these different lasers uh that it was supposed to use and when in the landing moments in those last 11 minutes it's not, there's no live video or anything like that. It's just sending telemetry back and there's no controlling it. It's doing it all by itself. So everybody in the control room is just waiting and watching. And the plan is it, it does its thing. It lands, it's silent for 15 seconds while it takes a bunch of measurements. And then it's supposed to send a really clear signal back about what's going on. But it, it went silent for minutes. And so they could not figure out what was happening. And then they said, okay, we've got a weak signal. We can confirm it's on the ground. We can confirm uh, that we're getting a weak signal. Um, but th that that's all they could say in the moment. And so that's where they said, well, we're on the moon. We made it there. Let's applaud. And so they had that muted applause. Now that, yeah, exactly. Now they're saying, well, we know it's pointing. We know it's upright. We know it's not on its side. Uh, I don't exactly know how they know that, but they do. Uh, and they said, we're now in communication. We're going to start getting data back. But they have not yet sent a single picture. So, I, I mean, th some people are saying it's a huge success. And some people are saying, well, let's see the picture. I just want to see a picture to know that this thing landed okay. So there's still some question marks, but it is... It's, if nothing else, it's dramatic and exciting, which is what everybody loves. All right. But this machine was sent up uh, through private enterprise. I guess it went on a rocket from uh, Elon Musk's uh, company and then uh, proceeded on its own. And it's from Intuitive Machines. So more and more is the space program in the hands of private enterprise as opposed to the government? Yeah, and and I think that's uh, I think it, universally people pretty much agree that's a good thing for for private industry. It's fun because you have all kinds of companies that are able to participate and innovate and make the technology evolve more quickly and do fun things and start looking at you know maybe mining uh, asteroids, mining the moon. Uh, the moon has things like helium and it's got things like rare earth metals that could be used for for electronics. So there's lots of potential there, and it's exciting that that's started. But for NASA. I mean, they had infinite money in the 60s. They had as anything they wanted, they had 10 times that. And so any they had all the people you could possibly want, and everybody was focused on the same mission, and nobody ever said no to them. 
Now, people say no to NASA all the time. They've got like an orders of magnitude less money as a percentage of, of GDP. They, I mean, they have fancier equipment, but they just don't have the resources they used to. So they're trying to do more with less in a lot of ways. And so they have to pick missions. You know, sometimes they have to say no to certain parts of a mission because it's just more expensive. And by pairing with private industry, they get more bang for their buck. So they can say, okay, listen, we want all you companies to try to build moon landers and we'll give a little money to each of you and we can spread our bets across the table. So instead of having one NASA mission that they put all their eggs into, they have a bunch of bets. And so we saw a month ago when the Peregrine lander failed, NASA, you know, lost its bet, basically. They'd put a bunch of investment into that and it didn't make it to the moon. Okay, but then, to, you know, last night's landing was a success. And so the money they put into that, uh, they're getting a return on that investment. They're getting to test a bunch of their equipment on on the moon ahead of their real NASA mission where they're going to try to put people there. So it's it's a smart move by NASA, and I think it's the way forward. Well, a NASA that leads into has a kind of a budget program. Let's figure out right here on land what it might be like to experience life on Mars. They are seeking volunteers for a paid year-long simulated Mars mission. Uh, and uh, here to uh, talk about that is Suzanne Bell. She's the lead for NASA's Behavioral Health and Performance Lab. So for the explorers, the adventurers, the people who love science out there, this is a really unique and incredible opportunity to be able to contribute to science. So for 378 days, they do complicated tasks like uh, extravehicular activities, virtual realities, surface exploration of Mars, and then maintenance and cleaning and cooking and being roommates at night. Would you be willing to spend 378 days locked up in a biosphere type uh, thing and figure out and play simulated games what it's like to live on Mars? I think that there is an amount of money you could pay me to do it, but it's a very large amount of money. And I would not volunteer at all. This sounds just terrible, but I still find people. People love doing this stuff. What about you? Would you sign up for something like this? I don't know. I mean, uh, Donnie went on his honeymoon and Christina's filling in and she said that she would do it. And I said, yeah, after 378 days, you come out of there and your boyfriend's going to have a new girl. Yeah, well, you're going to, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that when they set up these things, they even set it up realistically so that if you want to talk to somebody back home, you can, but there's a oh. 14 minute delay. So, you know, you, you say a bunch of stuff and then 14 minutes later, they get the message and then 14 minutes later, you get the response. And so it's not like a back and forth, you know, nice to see you kind of thing. And, and But that's part of really the, one of the big questions is what is going to Mars going to do psychologically to people if they yeah. live in the same little, and so really this is like a reality show sort of like. Like, we want to see if you guys can still get along for 378 days. And if not, we want to know exactly what went wrong. And I, I mean, I'm all for testing out like anti-gravity stuff. That sounds fun. But testing out relationships and seeing whether I get really annoyed with people. Uh, no, I, that I'm not the person you want on that spacecraft. But that's right. all the more reason why I shouldn't be the one they send to Mars, I guess. Well, me neither. Um, and uh, 378 days would teach you something. But uh, there is a plan for a one-way trip to Mars. And that's the rest of your life with those people <laughs> and on Mars. And uh, and one of one of my sons actually applied for the thing. He's a physicist, and uh, so he has some of the qualifications. And uh, boy, his parents were disappointed when he didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I know you can communicate with them, but oh my gosh, that's not what I wanted. But uh, uh, this this seems a very valuable uh, experiment. 
Yeah, I, I think that there are so many things that you, we we sort of underestimate in terms of how hard Mars is to do. One is just the trying to survive the trip there. Being in anti-gravity or, or zero gravity for that long just wreaks havoc on the human body. We haven't solved that problem. And then there's the social stuff. And yeah. then there's just the technological stuff of how do you take off again from the surface of Mars and fly back. And that spacecraft doesn't exist yet, despite Elon Musk working on it. But we'll get there. It's just these are the things we have to do on the way. Talk to you next week. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Thanks yeah, a lot. That's Dan Risk. And coming up, we've got more info here on where we might go with the investigation into the ArriveCan app on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good morning. Good to have you along. Well, we've been talking for some time now about what appears to be an incredible debacle and could, in fact, have criminal activity involved. We don't know that that's the case, but it's worth investigating. And that's how the ArriveCan app went from $80,000 to $60 million. Where did all that money go? And the thing never worked perfectly in the first place place. I'm aware of this because I used it a number of times. And then additionally, the reports of people who were quarantined when they didn't need to be. And there was it was just a, um, a boondoggle, it would seem. And uh, the conservatives are really learning, uh, leaning into an investigation on this. Joining me to talk about it, Michael Barrett. He is the MP for Leeds Grenville, Thousand Islands, and Rideau Lakes. He's also the shadow minister for ethics and accountable government. Michael Barrett, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jerry. Am I right to say if the liberals had a majority government today, we wouldn't have an investigation into Arrive Can? You're absolutely right. And they demonstrated that in November of 2022 in a motion by Pierre Polyev put forward in the House of Commons to have the Auditor General investigate the arrived scam. That's the Auditor General investigation that we just got back. Um, the Liberals voted against it. It was a Conservative motion, and we were able to uh, muster support from the other opposition parties to get it passed. And that's the only reason, because the Liberals, just like they tried to have a two-day talkathon, a filibuster this week to block us from issuing subpoenas for um, for the principles of GC Strategies, that two-person firm that was paid $20 million but did no IT work. Um, they tried to stop us from doing that. They tried to stop the AG investigation. A majority liberal government would sweep this all under the rug. Can you compel those two people from that? Because uh, it is strange that a two-person uh, consulting company somehow was uh, in charge of this whole thing. Can you compel them to come to Ottawa and testify? Well, absolutely. And that this week we had a common sense conservative motion to do just that. And uh, the Liberals tried to stop it, but we were able to get it passed. And if the principles of GC strategies don't present themselves to testify at the Standing Committee on uh, Government Operations, uh, a warrant will be issued for their arrest and they will be brought to the House of Commons um, by the sergeant at arms to answer our questions and then released only when we're satisfied with the answers that we've been given. So um, so we will compel them. It's exceedingly rare, but this is an exceedingly rare scandal. You would do that and you have the power to do that legally? Absolutely, 100%. This is a, this is a power. Uh, Canada's parliament has the power to send for persons and papers. Uh, there is precedent for it. Local law enforcement um, will cooperate in, in the jurisdiction wherever the individuals are who are sent for. Um, but uh, we don't do it often. It's been done uh, in the in the mid 2000s. It was it was done, and um, and and we've passed a motion at committee, which will be um, brought to the house. And absolutely, if if they don't come to testify, they've avoided two parliamentary summons. 
um, if they if they don't come this time, uh, we're going to go get them. All right. I'm talking to conservative shadow minister for ethics and accountable government, Michael Barrett. It seems to me you're alleging then that you believe there's criminal activity there. No, what we're saying is that uh, we need answers from them, and they've they've refused to present themselves. The Auditor General raised incredible concerns about the awarding of of these contracts to GC Strategies, and we have questions about that. Uh, we also know that the RCMP is investigating some of the contractors who worked on Arrive Can. Uh, we don't know which ones. Um, well, one of the questions, of course, that we'd we'd ask the uh, uh, that we will ask these these. Uh, folks from GC Strategies, is if they're being uh, questioned uh, by the RCMP. Um, but, uh, the, you know, questions of criminality are to be, um, are to be investigated and, and charged by law enforcement. Um, questions of accountability for the public dollar, um, that's our role as, uh, uh, you know, to scrutinize that as parliamentarians. And that's what we're doing because this is a, this is a $60 million app that wrongly quarantined 10,000 uh, Canadians, uh, put them under house arrest for 14 days with threat of them going to jail if they, if they did it, though they had followed all the rules, and, um, and contractors getting paid tens of millions of dollars, though they did no IT work. This same contracting firm uh, was reported by La Presse um, last week to have received $258 million in contracts from the Trudeau government starting three weeks after they were elected. Well, there's two guys operating out of a basement of a suburban Ottawa home. Um, someone needs to answer for that, Jerry. All right. I'm talking to Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government, Michael Barrett. Now, there are a couple of civil servants who are suspended over the whole Arrive Can uh, debacle. And uh, here is Cameron McDonald. He worked on the Arrive Can app while employed by CBSA. And uh, he thinks this is uh, he's being scapegoated. The reality is this document is nothing more than a collection of baseless accusations unsupported by any corroborating evidence. Accusations of wrongdoing supported by cherry-picked emails and calendar entries. It should be called the preliminary statement of falsehoods. That's the CBSA internal report. And um, Michael Barrett, how do you react to what he just said? Well, uh, it's not appropriate to have the department who is at the center of this scandal, CBSA, the Canada Border Service Agency, um, to have them investigating themselves. And so we've said that we don't put any stock in, essentially, in, in people who uh, owe their jobs to Justin Trudeau um, in investigating his scandal. Because it's important, it's important to note, Jerry, that there's been shuffles. You know, people have changed jobs. Ministers have changed jobs. The head of the CBSA has been changed out. Um, but the only person who's still uh, who's there, that continuity, comes through the Privy Council office from, uh, that's the Prime Minister's department, from the Prime Minister. That Prime Minister is Justin Trudeau. So he can't be investigating himself. Yesterday, we passed a motion. Um, again, uh, it made the Liberals very uncomfortable. But that's to have the, the um, uh, public sector integrity commissioner, uh, you know, take a look at the situation that's going on with these, um, you know, within the public service with relation to these witnesses who testified um, you know, we need these investigations just like the Auditor General and just like the procurement ombudsman who 
um, who's a who's a watchdog on pro, on on uh, public sector procurement and raised all kinds of red flags about the broken procurement system in Justin Trudeau's Ottawa. All right, now Justin Trudeau uh, will make the claim. I think he has made the claim that um, you know he's at the top of the pyramid and he was busy running an awful lot of things during the pandemic and uh, he wasn't watching as every piece of paper and every bill came across his desk on something like arrive can. Uh, maybe that's true, but who was actually the buck stops somewhere with any large project. So who was supposed to be in charge of this thing? Well, look, we, the ministerial accountability is a cornerstone of our uh, Westminster system and our parliamentary democracy. And uh, the ministers need to be held responsible. We had Minister Haidu, who was the um, Minister uh, of Health. We had uh, Minister Blair, who was the minister responsible for, um, for uh, um, CBSA. Uh, these, you know, the, the the ministers, the cabinet needs to be responsible. And I don't accept from, you know, from Justin Trudeau, and he has made the claim, of course, that, you know, public servants are, are the ones who are responsible for this. This is a $60 million project that started off at $80,000. And um, there's there's no world where a project can blow up in price like that and then end up in the news for corn, you know, for, for you know, putting 10,000 people on, on, under um, under forced uh, quarantine in their homes um, and then and then tell me that that didn't cross the prime minister's desk uh, and and what action has he taken um, only actions that have been forced on him by the official opposition conservatives so this is this is uh, the of the prime minister's making and, and he needs to be accountable for it and that's why we're pursuing um, investigations by independent officers of parliament and of course I'm urging the Prime Minister to commit his cooperation to the RCMP who are investigating. You can compel the two individuals of GC Strategies to come before your committee. I guess you can't make them talk, but I doubt they would just sit there. Uh, but you've explained that legally you can do that. Can you legally compel the Prime Minister to come before your committee? Uh, no. And uh, that's, uh, that's um, a challenge that even those who have the legal authority to uh, ask him questions, um, he doesn't need to answer them, we've learned. And this was the case with the SNC-Lavalin scandal. And uh, the prime minister used the powers of the executive of his office to shield information that the RCMP, um, th that they expressed to the Trudeau government that they needed to, um, to satisfy their inquiries into that scandal, into, into his role in that scandal. But he was able to use what's called cabinet confidence, which isn't supposed to shield someone from alleged criminality. It's instead supposed to be used to allow cabinet to have frank and open discussions. So, um, so even the RCMP are, are stymied um, by, uh, by, by what the prime minister uh, can do and has done. And so uh, we, can't, we can't make him come to a committee. But uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how these investigations uh, develop and and who uh, who ends up in front of the RCMP. Well, the arrive can story is far from over, and we may speak again. Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government, Michael Barrett. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks for your time, Jerry. Have a great weekend. Yeah, another discount airline has gone down. What does that mean in the business world? And for all anyone who likes to travel, we'll talk coming up on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It is a Friday, so it's touchdowns and fumbles day. And, of course, we have a question for you to answer. New Ontario Liberal leader Bonnie Crombie was pressed this week from several directions for her position on the idea of a provincial carbon tax. Basically, uh, her answers, time and time and time again, boiled down to this. We will develop a very strong but progressive plan to tackle climate change. 
Okay, in other words, a policy's coming, not right now. Is that a touchdown or a fumble? Some would say that is the best way for a new party leader to go, keep the options open until they've had a chance to debate and arrive at a position that the whole party can support. If that's your view, text the letters TD to 71010. We'll count your vote as a touchdown. Just the two letters TD. Now, if you think this is a key issue, that Crombie, as a leader of her party, should already have a strong message to communicate, text the word FUMBLE to 71010, and we'll tell you that vote accordingly. FUMBLE to 71010. An hour from now, Bob Reed will be here with touchdowns and fumbles. We'll get his communications expertise on it and uh, your vote total as well. Meanwhile, new story in the news. Calgary-based airline Lynx Air announced that they are filing for creditor protection and they are going to cease operations at midnight Monday, February 26th. So if you have a ticket on Lynx Air past that time, you might want to be checking on how you're going to get around. I, I think uh, WestJet's offering some discounts, but that doesn't mean you get your money back. Will you get your money back? I, re I recall when Lynx Air first came along, I had one of their executives on the show, and it was all about how this is going to save money, and it was all bright and shiny and exciting at the time. But uh, joining me to talk about this, as he often does on airline industry issues, John Torrey Jr. Good morning. Morning, Gary. So um, what happened here? Why, why didn't it work? I mean, you know, th that's stuff that you'll find out over time. But essentially, based on their statement, it sounds like they ran out of money. They couldn't meet their obligations. And so they are ceasing operations. That was what was in their filing. And you sort of have to take that at face value. Um, lying in bankruptcy court or misrepresenting things tends to have a very, very bad outcome. So I would assume they're being well advised. And they, that's the truth. They just couldn't meet their obligations anymore. Well, that's basically how people go bankrupt, isn't it? Um, the, usually. Yeah, usually. Uh, okay, usually. Uh, unless it's a scam or something. And we're not going to assume that that is the case. But it seems to me, John, that oftentimes these businesses come along. It happens in the real estate business. It happens in the airline business uh, and probably in other areas uh, where along come people who say, hey, we're discount. We can charge you a lot less money. And other people are going, yeah, it's because you're being ripped off by the uh, sort of status quo. But then these discount operations just disappear there i mean remember what they're there to do they're risky from a standpoint of where they're trying to be in the market they're trying to be at the absolute lowest cost position in the market from a fair standpoint which means that any padding that might exist any margin that you might have on your product it's just not there or it's not there to the same scale that a larger carrier so that when you're starting out already by saying we're going to be the cheapest it means almost by definition that you have to keep your cost the lowest and you're probably going to have some of the thinnest margins unless you can get onto a model like uh, Ryanair or Southwest used to be or JetBlue used to be when they were smaller. Yeah, uh, do all any of those exist? They all exist. JetBlue is growing. Southwest is growing. The model there in a lot of those cases, when those two were smaller and Ryanair still to this day, they go and seek funding from smaller airports to encourage their service to come in and land. So there's there's like a it's almost like a partnership. And uh, and then, of course, they, they operate in these very, very densely populated corridors. So there are a lot of customers and volume gives you some certainty that you're going to sell the right number of tickets to make your money. Uh, well, here's an interesting argument. This is Brian Lilly's column in the Toronto Sun today. He says high taxes and fees on flights is why airlines like Lynx fail. Do you think he's on to something there? 
I think well, you, look, they definitely play a role in the overall ticket price. Like they can make up anywhere from 20 to 40% of a ticket price. And so for sure, that is exactly what I was talking about when I said the Ryanairs of the world, they, they not only convince some of these smaller airports, uh, you know, like in Toronto, you might look at an airport like Oshawa, they might, they might convince them not only to not charge a fee, but even to give an incentive on a per customer basis. So $10, $10 ahead to the airline or again, it goes directly against the ticket price. That's usually the deal that's reached. And then they can offer these $20 fares. In fact, if you go and you search on any airline, any Canadian airline, and you go and look at the breakdown of your cost, you'll often find that the actual fare and call it the fuel surcharge. So the part the airline is using is not, it's, it's often somewhere around 50 to 60% of the ticket price. Okay. Um, maybe yeah. Do- maybe Dollarama should start an airline because they seem to be able to run in the discount world fairly well. I think I think these economic times are probably good for them. I'm hearing, uh, not surprisingly, John, I'm hearing from people here who actually have tickets with Lynx Air, looking forward to a vacation I may not get, that kind of thing coming across my text board right now. Will these people get their money back? You, you, you never know. I mean, this is the stuff that will come out very soon because you'll know the cash position of the airline. And then you'll see where the ticket holders fall in terms of the sequence of who's going to get paid. But typically, people like aircraft leaseholders, various debt holders of the corporation, they tend to come first over those towards whom the airline has a service liability, like the ticket holders. This is where I always give a, pl- a shout out to both registered travel agents and or um, you know credit cards, particularly those that are aligned with an airline or a frequent flyer program, because they often have decent protection and insurance in them. If you buy your ticket or travel through a registered travel agent, you in Ontario, at least you have insurance. And in many of the provinces, you actually have insurance on your ticket uh, in almost all cases to protect you against things like this. But, you know, certainly for people who are planning upcoming travel, I know this is stressful. I wouldn't be expecting money to come in the short order unless the federal government steps in and agrees to kind of float that amount against whatever comes out of the bankruptcy court. Well, and I don't know if some of these discount airlines also suffer. Maybe there are, maybe I'm the only one, but I bet there are other people who feel like me and I never really trust them. Uh, Not that I think they're dishonest people. It is that they don't have a big fleet of planes. And so if they've got a maintenance issue, you're just not going that day. They don't have another flight to put you on. And they're also, they they run the business by selling you the ticket as cheaply as possible and then trying to uh, get as much money as possible out of you on your luggage. Yeah, I mean, look, the luggage thing, I'll say last, that's all part of this race to the bottom with fares. It used to be that the cost of baggage was included for everybody. So everyone paid the cost for whatever percentage of people checked the first bag. And what they all, the airlines, the market decided is we want to see the cheapest fare. So you have to pull out all their costs. So they're not ripping you off. It just used to be buried in everyone's ticket. So Jerry, on the days when you didn't check a bag, you were socializing the cost of somebody else checking their bag. Because every pound you fly, costs fuel yeah. uh, on the other side as far as uh, trusting them i think it's a i think it's a good i think we need dynamic i think we need people willing to come into the market and say i'm going to give it a shot um, the problem with a thinly populated country that's spread out over a long distance is it's really hard to start energy and capital intensive travel businesses in this country and we're just seeing it here links did they made it what i think five years since they were Enerjet. And they had a fleet of nine 737s. And so I think it was nine. So, I mean, they did okay. It was a good run for them. And, you know, and we'll see what happens now that there's 
clearly a gap in the market. If you are holding a ticket on Lynx Air past this Monday, you need alternate arrangements as they have filed. Well, they're stopping their operations. John Torrey Jr., always good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jer. Upcoming Jim Richards on Party for Two.